Good morning, church. You may be seated. Thank you, Mark and musicians, Caleb and Scott, for leading us thus far in worship, which we continue to do now as we give our attention to the preaching of God's Word. I realized this week that nothing brings tears to my eyes more easily than the incarnation of our Lord Jesus. I usually don't start listening to Christmas music until either starting my first Christmas sermon or December 1st, whatever is first. And for being normal, I earned a bad rap from our church staff for having a shrunken green heart because I don't listen to Christmas music all through November, maybe even in October. So when I told them the all, I, all, all this week, I told them, I think it was Monday or Tuesday, that I was starting to listen to Christmas music and sent them a playlist Rebecca sent me a Grinch gift. His heart grew three times larger that day. And Jen put up a Christmas tree faster than I thought was humanly possible. There wasn't one when I left my house, and there was one when I got to the office. It was incredible. My heart doesn't grow, though. It absolutely melts, utterly mesmerized that Jesus came for us. Stunned speechless at the condescension of Christ and taking on flesh of entering the world of sin and darkness to shine his light upon us and save us. And those truths and song, they catch me by surprise sometimes when I'm driving. Watching the nativity story, which I usually do every year, it gets me every time, and when they depict the birth of Christ, I just, I lose it. And so does reading reflections like the following, found in the book that Pastor Caleb has wonderfully recommended to us, this Advent. Many of you have purchased it. And I'm grateful to our church staff, to Sharon, and uh, others who make sure that it was able to get into our hands. Listen to this. Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that he, the bread, might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on his journey, that the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. That was written by Augustine, and it is a marvelous reflection, is it not? There are not words enough to describe the marvel of God becoming man. But the question comes, why? Why did God send His Son? Why did God the Son condescend to take on flesh? I wonder how you would answer that question. In our Advent series, we're going to be answering that question from just one passage of Scripture, borrowing an excellent framework from Stephen Wellam that Pastor Caleb put into my hands and says, I think this is our Advent series, and he's right. And in that short excerpt, Stephen Wellam writes on the fourfold purpose and necessity of the incarnation, or as we're titling it, why the Word became flesh. And reason number one is my task to unpack this morning, and I'm just going to very simply state what it is, to fulfill God's original intention for humanity. 
We cannot understand Jesus' birth in Bethlehem to a virgin apart from understanding who we are and why we are. The two are inextricably linked. So the first reason that we're going to explore in our Advent series of why the Word became flesh was to fulfill God's original intention for humanity. And for me, this raises more questions. Questions I'm going to ask of the text that we're about to read. First is, what is God's original intention for us? Second, why can't we fulfill God's original intention for us on our own? And third, how does Jesus fulfill God's original intention for us? And my hope and my prayer is that leaving here, you will better understand who you are, why you exist, the future you can have, and all that God has done for us in Christ. And to that end, I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be spending the next four weeks in Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. It's page 1001 on the Blue Bibles, in the Blue Bibles, Pew Bibles. So Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9, and I was asked at the door this morning, why was this chosen for Advent? Why this? We pondered that in our life group this week. Why would this be chosen for Advent? Well, let's read and work our way through, and I trust that will become clear. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 is where we're going to be focusing this morning. But as we're embarking on this, I want to read the, 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 the context. So I'm going to begin in chapter 1, verse 1, and read through our sermon text for this morning and make some comments to tie it together before we begin in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 5. So let me pray first, and then we will read our text together. Lord, please, by your grace, for your glory, and for our good, would you enlighten our minds, grant understanding to our hearts, unplug our ears, focus our attention on just one of the incredible reasons for your sending your son into this world. May he increase, and may we decrease, we ask in his name. Amen. So pick up with me, Hebrews 1.1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. 
And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, speaking of angels, not all ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man, that you are mindful of him, or the son of man, that you care for him? He made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, when putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of the grand themes of this sermonic letter to the Hebrews is the supremacy of God the Son. He's superior to the angels, as we heard. If we were to keep reading, you would read that he is superior to Moses. He's superior to the priests of the old covenant as the great high priest of the new covenant, which is in his own blood. And so, as we read, the author begins with the supremacy of God the Son. And in these last days, God has spoken by his Son, and given who the Son is, given what the Son has done, the author says we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. The one through whom God has spoken is the heir of all things, the world was created through him. is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He made purification for sins. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's superior to the angelic beings who declared a reliable message, which is attested to by human agents and most of all by Father, Son, and Spirit. Given all of that, why would we not listen to what he has declared? And as the writer continues, especially so given the reasons the Son of God came, the reasons the Word became flesh. The first of these, in Hebrews 2, 5 through 18, we'll stop at verse 9, has, has been said, is to fulfill God's original intention for humanity, for us. Which brings us to the first of the three questions I want to ask of the text this morning. What is God's original intention for us? What did he make us for? What did he make us to do? 
and writing of those to whom God has subjected the world to come, a phrase we'll come back to at the end, the author introduces a quotation from Psalm 8. It was sung to us this morning at the beginning of our service. It has been testified somewhere with the emphasis on testified. And the writer has a high view of Scripture based on chapter 1 and the rest of the letter. He's not flippantly introducing Psalm 8. He's just more interested in what the psalmist said than who the particular psalmist is. And that psalm, written by David, is a psalm that reflects on the glory and grandeur of God, evidenced in creation. You think back to David stargazing without the light pollution of the modern world, and he is mesmerized. Given the beauty of the Milky Way streaking across the night sky, he's mesmerized by who God is. And he rightly feels small, as we always should when contemplating the works of God's fingers in this way. And as David is working through this, uh, this worship, this psalm, he's equally mesmerized, not only by the attention that God pays us, not only that God looks in on us, which he does with steadfast love and, and faithfulness. We see that in verse 6. What is man that you are mindful of him? David is mesmerized by this, but he's especially taken by the role that God has given to us as human beings. Compared to God, compared to the vastness and splendor of his creation, compared to the angels, David is stunned by the unique, lofty status that we've been granted as human beings. Though we have been made lower than the angels, beings that humans are tempted to worship, just ask the Apostle John about that, Though we have for a time been made lower than the angels, this present world and the world to come has been entrusted to us by God, his image bearers, that we might have dominion over what God has made as his vice regents. That's what David is reflecting on, and that's what the author of Hebrews is picking up on transporting us all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And there God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And as we learned when studying Genesis, humans are uniquely highlighted as the crown jewel of God's creation. More space is given to day six when humans are made than any other day. Humans are uniquely created as the crown jewel of God's creation. Peter Gentry writes, I quote, ten times in Genesis prior to Genesis 1.26, we are told that each of the animals and plants are made according to their kind. But, he writes... Humans are not made according to their kind. They are created in some way according to God. And this, he concludes, has huge significance. In the 13th century BC, one of the pharaohs, Ramesses II, he made an ancient Mount Rushmore. And he carved into a piece of rock his face so that every time someone saw it, they would know that he was king in these parts. 
that this was his territory. In the same way, but in a greater way, God put man and woman in the middle of his creation as a living statue in his image to say, I am Lord and King of all of this. And so as God's image bearers, as God's vice regents, we are thus uniquely commissioned as the crown jewel of God's creation. We are specially created. We're uniquely in God's image compared to all the other creatures, including the angels. And we're given a task, a special task that no other creature has been given. A task that only those made in God's image and according to God's likeness could accomplish. And in Hebrews 2 and Psalm 8 and Genesis 1, this task is subjection or dominion. You notice the repetition of that word in our passage. You see it in verse 5, speaking of a subjection of the world to come. And then it's three times in verse 8, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. In writing of this commission, I quote Peter Gentry again. He says, Genesis 1.26, which this is referring us back to, Genesis 1.26 defines a divine human relationship with two dimensions. One is vertical, and one is horizontal. First, there's a covenant relationship between God and humans. Second, there's a covenant relationship between humans and the creation the creatures and the earth. The relationship between humans and God is best captured by the term obedient sonship. The relationship between humans and the creation may be expressed as servant kingship. So differently from the animals, differently from the angels, humanity is made in the image of God, has a unique relationship to God, and has a unique relationship to the creation so that they can rule over the rest of the creation that God has made because we are uniquely made in his image. We're to have dominion. We're to subject the creation that God has entrusted to us. So training dogs, planting gardens, building jet engines, painting sunsets, writing poetry, making music, setting bones, programming apps, baking bread, conserving and preserving the environment... All of this and more can be done and is to be done as vassal kings in service and worship to God. He has blessed us with creation to cultivate for his glory. And if you want to get uber practical, and you've heard me say this before, this is my theological reason for telling my kids to clean their rooms. God brings order out of chaos. Read Genesis 1. And part of your training for being like him in the big wide world out there is to apply that to your bedroom floor. The other day, my daughter said, it's so much more relaxing and restful when things are clean. Do you know why she said that? Because she's my favorite. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I don't have favorites. Do you know why she said that? She said it because she's an image bearer. That's why she said it. Adam and Eve, made a little lower than the angels, were destined for honor and glory, and were to push out the boundaries of Eden to fill and subdue the earth with their divine image-bearing offspring. That was God's original intention for humanity. And nothing, Hebrews 2.8 tells us, I, I still believe it's speaking about humanity, it's singular, but it's referring to the collective. 
Hebrews 2.8 tells us, nothing was left outside of the control of human beings. Nothing. No wonder David is mesmerized that the God who made all of this would make us like him and entrust it to us so that we could represent him as vassal kings and queens who are sons and daughters of the Most High God. That's why you were made. That's why you're here. But there's a glaring problem, isn't there? There's something wrong with this world. The writer to the Hebrews is speaking of the world to come, not this world. His hopes are set beyond the mere here and now to another kingdom, to another city, as he would later write. There's also something wrong with our capacity to subdue the earth, as verse 8, the second half of verse 8 indicates. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, that is, to humanity. We're not able to fulfill God's original intention for us because there's something seriously wrong with creation and there's something seriously wrong with us. I have a cousin in Australia who tells the story of being woken up in the middle of the night by his dad exclaiming loudly, you did what? On the other end of the phone was the older brother in the family who had taken the car and while street racing in the middle of the night had sent the car airborne into the living room window of someone's house. It's quite the disaster, yes? Thankfully, no one was hurt. Nevertheless, the sense that you feel of hearing such a story, it utterly pales in comparison to humanity taking the keys of creation and careening ourselves into the ditch of sin and death at the beckoning of Satan. That's what happened in the garden. Every time we sin, every failure of living as God's vice regents is to drive in the same rut that our representative Adam gouged in the garden. Wellam writes, I quote, The use of Psalm 8 here leads us to look back to the original intention for humanity that was corrupted by sin. As C.S. Lewis puts it so memorably, and Aslan's response to Caspian's shame over his family line, you come from the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve. And that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. We're beckoned, not just back to Genesis 1 and 2 from Hebrews 2 and Psalm 8, we're beckoned back to Genesis 3. To the moment when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise to the moment when she took of its fruit and ate, when she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And that vertical covenant relationship between God and humans, it was broken. Adam and Eve hid from him. Adam blamed God for putting Eve in the garden. 
The horizontal relationship between creatures was broken. They hid from each other. Adam blamed his wife for giving him the fruit. Animals were slain to cover their nakedness. There would be strife between the first pair and every pair after. The horizontal relationship between humanity and creation was also broken. The command to be fruitful and multiply would be agonizing for the woman. The ground was cursed as thorns and thistles would sprout up everywhere. Pain and toil would be the new normal to eke out survival. And death would be the end of the sweat-inducing, groan-resounding, back-breaking, conflict-strewn, sin-infested existence. Ever since, this agonizing futility has marked our experience in this fallen creation as sinful creatures who are thwarted at every front by the enemies of sin and death and Satan. As the songwriter puts it, here dreadful doom upon us lies, death looms so grim before our eyes. This is what prevents us from fulfilling God's original intention for us. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sin, Romans 5.12. Creation was subjected to futility, is in bondage to corruption, and the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, Romans 8, 20 through 22. All of our efforts, even our best efforts, will not transform this world into some sort of utopia. And though we've tried hard, we can't even get out of the hole of beating back the curse, let alone fulfilling the task given to Adam and Eve before they fell. Monarchies haven't been able to beat back the curse. Democracies have tried it. Oligarchies have tried it. Philosopher kings were proposed as a theory. We've tried totalitarian regimes. We've tried communism. We've tried all sorts of theories and philosophies, and every single one of them is a colossal failure. Anyone who has tried is dead or will die. Military power won't solve the issue. Environmentalism won't reverse what happened in the garden. Transhumanists and their proposals to download your consciousness into a machine so that you never die, to vault forward our so-called evolution, that's not going to stop death. Money won't stave off the realities of the curse. Politics won't save us from our nature. The pleasures held forth by the prince of darkness yeah, they're just going to be an ever-diminishing return until they give way to temporal and eternal suffering. There are over 7 billion of us on the planet now. And we can't even come close to solving the problem and the issues that have plagued us since the garden. The point of highlighting this is threefold. To validate the reality that we all live, we do not yet see everything that God gave to humanity in subjection to humanity the way God intended. If it feels like something's wrong, it's because there's something wrong. And there's nothing wrong with concluding that something is wrong. Second, highlighting this empties us of ourselves. We need to be stripped of delusions of grandeur that we can get ourselves out of life in this fallen world alive. We cannot. If you're not a Christian, you're here with us this morning. We're thrilled that you're here. But listen, please, you cannot save yourself. 
The problem isn't out there and the solution in here. The problem's in here. You brought it with you this morning. The solution is outside of yourself. It's found in Jesus Christ. And I highlight all of this, third, to help us see who we're supposed to see in verse 9. This is where the text turns. This is why it's an Advent passage. For here is where the marvel of humanity made in God's image as God's vassal kings, which turns to horror in Adam's fall, is redeemed by the appearance of what Scripture calls the last Adam. Here's where the author of Hebrews looks back to Psalm 8, looking back to Genesis 1 and 2, in light of the radiance of God's glory, namely Christ. This is biblical theology as best as you will get it. It's a tour de force in Christian theological reflection because in verse 9, enter Jesus emphatically introduced for the first time in the book by name. What we do not yet see is the fulfillment of God's original intention for us, but what we do see is the one God has sent to fulfill God's original intention for us. We see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor as Adam and Eve ought to have been, and this because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. The same psalm that invites us to look back invites us to look forward. Stephen Wellam explains, I quote, Psalm 8 speaks prophetically to a day when God will restore humans to his original intentions for us. A restoration that will take place through another man. One who comes from the human race to act on our behalf to reverse the curse of the first Adam. Instead of failure and corruption through disobedience, this last Adam will bring victory and righteousness through obedience to God, end quote. Which brings me to the third question I want to ask of the text. How does Jesus fulfill God's original intention for us? How is that victory and righteousness brought to us? What shape does that obedience take? Well, first, please note with me, it is through the most profound humiliation and condescension, the depths of which will never be plumbed. To speak of Jesus, in verse 9, as made a little lower than the angels that he made, is to speak of his incarnation. That's what the author is referring to. Jesus was made for a little while lower than the angels, when he took on flesh. But that was not the end of the condescension. The suffering of death of the first Adam was resulted in the just judgment and wages of sin. The suffering of death of the last Adam was the very occasion for his being crowned with glory and honor. You see the, the opposites here? 
what we find here in Hebrews 2, rings of Philippians 2, where Paul, writing about Jesus being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has rightly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The name of the one who took on flesh as the last Adam and who lived in perfect obedience to the law of God, who resisted the temptations of the will of Satan in the wilderness where we couldn't resist him in the garden, and then to suffer and to die. And the accomplishment of this comes at the end of the verse. So that by the grace of God, this is a gift, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. On the surface, this rings of a universal scope of the atonement, but I quick to highlight, the writer uses several phrases in the coming verses to indicate that this is particular in focus. Everyone here means everyone without distinction. That is all kinds of people. Not everyone without exception. That is every single person. The writer goes on, as we'll see in coming weeks, to speak about Jesus' brothers, the offspring of Abraham, not Adam, which you would maybe expect him to say, but the offspring of Abraham, that is those who believe in Christ by faith, and the writer also highlights those that God gives to him. That's very particular. For those whom God foreknew and predestined, Christ tasted death. Our judgment, so that we could be delivered from it, and thus released from the futility of death, may in the world to come actually fulfill the original intention that God has for us. Now, in modern speech, to give something a taste means to try something out. This is what you do on Saturday afternoon if you go to Costco and all the vendors are out. You sample stuff to see if you want to buy it. That's not what's meant here by the author. Another modern phrase will help us when we give someone a taste of their own medicine, we mean payback. We mean they get, we, they get what they deserve. We mean they've experienced what they inflicted upon the other. That's the kind of tasting that's meant here. Jesus shared fully in our experience of death, even though we were the ones who deserved to die, which is why his suffering is spoken of as a grace gift of God and why it results in his glory and his honor. For the outcome of Jesus' incarnation, of his passion, of his suffering, of his tasting death in our place, of his entering the world to come in his exalted, ascended state, the outcome of this is the subjection of an enemy that we could never defeat, death. You know what I don't enjoy? I don't enjoy sitting by the bedside of a member of our church and watching them struggle to take their last breath. Now, don't hear me wrong. It is the highest of privileges to hold a hand and to pray 
and to read Scripture and to seek to bring comfort. But it's hard because I love you. And I don't like to see you suffer. But you know what I will never trade? I will never trade the opportunity to lean in and say, do not be afraid. Jesus has been this way before. And he has come through the other side victorious over death. And he will take you by your hand and he will bring you to his side. He tasted death so that we could be released, as you'll see later, from the fear of the bondage of death, from the futility of an enemy that stops us from fulfilling God's original intention for us. That's what our Lord has done. And when we die in Christ, we are brought into the inaugurated world to come that he entered in his exaltation. And there we wait with him until he brings us with him. When the dead in Christ will be raised, those who are alive will be transformed, and at the same time altogether, we will enter the new heavens and the new earth. That is what verse 5 refers to. The world to come, which is what the writer says we have been speaking about. And the question is, well, where has he been speaking about the world to come? The answer is in chapter 1, verse 6. Where it says, when he brings the firstborn into the world, that's not speaking about his incarnation. That's speaking about his entrance into heaven after he had made purification for sins. He has entered into the kingdom has been inaugurated. We're waiting on its consummation. That's why it's the world to come. But that is the world that is going to be subjected to who? To us. The world to come is the meek inheriting the earth. The world to come is where we will reign with Christ as co-heirs of our elder brother. The world to come will, will arrive on the heels of sons of Adam and daughters of Eve doing what? Judging angels, the scripture tells us. And thus, God's original intention for humanity will be fulfilled. This is one of those moments where I stand up here and I see people look back at me with these wide eyes like, are you sure? Are you sure this is what God intends to give us? He intends to subject the world to come to us? Yes, this is exactly what I'm saying. It's his good pleasure, he tells us. He delights, he says, to give us his kingdom because of what he's done for us in Christ. My favorite lines of poetry have been going through my head all week from John Milton, where he writes of man's first disobedience and the fruit of that forbidden tree whose mortal taste brought death into our world and all our woe with loss of Eden until one greater man restore us and regain the blissful seat. The blissful seat is the world to come in subjection to Christ 
and to those remade in the image of the last Adam who will rule and reign for eternity. And as some specific application, just four words to relay. This passage invites us to ponder. The person who at the door this morning asked me why this passage said there's so much packed in there. There is. This invites us to ponder. And listen, I get December can be like a zoo. So I invite you to create some space for yourself to ponder this. Like, just watch one less Christmas movie. Just think carefully about what you listen to in the car. Just lay on the couch this afternoon and let your mind wander as it wanders over what God has done for us in Christ. Just create some space for yourself to ponder. Second, this passage compels us to proclaim. Twice in the last four months or so, someone has asked me the question, what do you believe is the most pressing issue that the church is faced with today? Once it was after a lecture I gave at a church in Hamilton, once was in an interview with a heritage student this past week, what is the most, one of the most pressing issues that you believe faces the church? And here's my answer. What it means to be a human being. The battle over what it means to be a human being. Do you know how much is bound up in this? All the issues of gender and sexuality are bound up in what it means, what it is to be a human being. All of the sanctity of life issues related to abortion and maid and everything in between, they're related to what it means to be a human being. All of the uh, ways in which we apply ourselves to politics or how we think we're going to solve the, uh, the, the environmental issue, uh, all, all of those are bound up in what it means to be a human being. If we don't know who we are, we're lost. If we don't know why we exist, we're lost. And these are the pressure points that we face from the culture. And so it's important for us, it's essential for us to listen this coming week to what your classmates and coworkers are saying. Listen for underneath what they're saying to how they define what a human being is. And then with questions or comments that you've given thought to beforehand, enter the conversation and help them understand God's original intention for us as human beings, which means that we're going to have to proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, because as I've said, these are inextricably, inextricably bound up with one another. People need to hear, and we must proclaim gently, patiently, respectfully directing them to the truth of who they are and who God has made them to be in Christ. Uh, two more words. The third is, this passage is a call to persevere. I'm relieved at the acknowledgement of this text that not all things are in subjection yet. The basement floods. The transmission goes in the car. The appliance breaks down just outside the warranty period. And we deal with these futility of life moments, these thorns and thistles. And it's so annoying. Isn't it so annoying? Your day gets ruined. Your week gets ruined. Your bank account just takes a, a hit. Because all things are not yet in subjection. I'm relieved just, to, to, just to, to, for the Scriptures to acknowledge that, okay, that's, our, that's where we are. And you add into this sin. 
and you add into the suffering. And we are not there yet. But yet is such a key word, friends. Yet doesn't mean never. Yet means it will be. Yet means soon. Yet means Jesus Christ right now as you're sitting here is subjecting his enemies under his feet until all of them are as a footstool. And I believe this is a call to persevere. If you feel like because of the futility of life and sin and suffering that you are barely hanging on, you're despairing, there's depression, there's burnout, maybe even there are some suicidal thoughts running through your heads. Friend, I want to say to you, hang on. I know it's not yet, but it will be. Because he's going to come. And he's going to give the world to come to us. So hold on. And if you need to talk to someone about these things, do that today. We might point you to the hope and joy that you can have through Christ in God. And in saying all of that with respect to perseverance, the final word is rest. It doesn't begin with P like all the others because I wanted it to stand out. Or I couldn't come up with a P word that fit. I believe this passage calls us to rest. It calls us to rest because it puts the weight of subjecting the world that is and is to come on Christ's shoulders, not on ours. So often, there are many times, and different generations too do this, it's not just this one, but these different generations that say, like, we're, like, we're going to end poverty. We're the we generation. This is the generation that could fulfill the Great Commission. And I absolutely love lofty, godly ambition. I'm just not in for crushing impossibilities. Sometimes we take the weight of transforming this world into the world to come on our own shoulders as though that were possible. We use language like, let's build the kingdom, let's usher in the kingdom. But you know what? The Bible doesn't speak in those terms about our role. We're called to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Let's do that. We're called to live as citizens of the kingdom. Let's do that. We're called to make sure we don't get in the way of anyone entering the kingdom. Let's not do that. But the building, the growth, the establishing, that's Jesus' work. Does he call us into a service? Of course he does. Does he use us? Of course he does. But it's still his work, and it's his grace and his power and his prerogative as how we are deployed for that end. And so we need to rest that this is not our task to accomplish. We trust that the fullness of God's kingdom will come in God's way through God's Son as a grace gift to be received. It's not something that we earn. It is going to be ours because we are united to Christ who is the last Adam who came to fulfill God's original intention for us. And as we eat and drink this morning, which we're about to do, we're invited to ponder. We're going to proclaim Christ's death together, right here, around, till he comes. We're going to be nourished to persevere. And I invite you that in coming to this table, it isn't about what you bring. 
It's about what God gives to us by his means of grace. As we are reminded and we taste and we see the finished work of Christ, who will bring all things in subjection to himself, give the kingdom to the Father, who in his good pleasure is pleased to give it to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for telling us who we are. Thank you for making us in your image. And Lord, though we have destroyed ourselves, thank you for remaking us in the image of your beloved son, the last Adam. Conform us to a greater degree through the time we have spent and will yet spend together here this morning, even as we reflect on his body broken, as he bore the weight of our sin, of his blood shed, without which there's no forgiveness of sins and through which there is a new and everlasting covenant, assurance to us that this world will be subjected and the world that is to come will be given to us through Christ. We praise you for this. Help us to sing with joy at the prospect, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.